Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I've told you from the beginning that our study of the book of Acts has been not one of watching what people went and did for God, but it's same as the Gospel of Luke was. It is the continuing story of the way in which God has worked. And yes, he has worked through his church. He has worked through his people. But God is the one. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who continues to do the work. In fact, there's a balance that I love to watch, a partnership, if you will, that exists between us and God. And when we don't hold those two aspects of that partnership and balance, I think that we lose sight of what's truly supposed to be going on. And, and here's what I mean by that, and we're going to see it demonstrated in our text as well. But there's lots of people, faithful people, people who love Jesus, people who want to see kingdom, the kingdom built, see gospel transformation. They want to see lives change. And so they go and try to do something for God as if they had it in their own to do for God. And a lot of times these are met with frustration because God doesn't expect us to just go and do something for God. Conversely, God does not expect us to just sit back and take a, a passive posture and just watch him go do work and not get involved. That's not in balance either. In fact, what we see through the scriptures and those of us who have engaged with the Lord in ministry and in mission have recognized is that there's a partnership. God is the power. God is the one who does it. But he does it through willing participants. He does it through his church. God, by his grace, for reasons I can't possibly understand, chooses to use even us, even Christians throughout history, to be the vehicle of his grace to those who are yet to know him. And so as we look back on the way in which God has worked in history, as we study this passage that we're going to look in today, we're going to see God at work. We're going to see God doing things. And we're going to see a faithful man of God stepping out in obedience to do what God has called him to do. And we're going to see the wonderful fruit of all of that. Our passage is a little bit lengthy today, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd prefer you to follow along with me. Um, that just keeps you from falling asleep and me being like, oh, I can't believe they fell asleep. No, I'm just kidding. No judgment from up here. But please don't fall asleep. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. For those of you who don't have a Bible in front of you, it will be up on the screen as well. All right, Acts chapter 10, we're going to start reading in verse 1, and here's what it says. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. 
The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cordelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything unclean. I'm sorry, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one could stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. Well, I appreciate that. That was a long passage. Stretch. Take a deep breath. Wake up. All right. Now it's an exciting passage though, right? Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the key factors that we need to understand here. So let's begin with Cornelius. He's the one we see as the passage opens up. Uh, So we see right at the beginning, I'm just going to reread verses 1 and 2 just to refresh your mind. Uh, Here's what he says. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And in these two verses, we get a good picture of who Cornelius was. And I want to touch on some of the uh, really important facets here. The first is this, that he is, in fact, a Gentile. That might seem weird, but that is distinctly what this passage is about. The fact that he is a Gentile, and up to this point, Only Jews and some Samaritans and and some others, but no distinct Gentiles, those who have no relationship at all with the Jews, none of them have come to faith in Jesus and been baptized with the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews had since Pentecost. And here this is happening. God is doing something new. So when it says that he is a Gentile, when I say that he is a Gentile, he's not a Jewish person. In fact, he's a Roman. He's a Roman soldier. He's part of that force that's occupying Israel, one of the enemies, if you will, of God's people, Israel, in this season of their history. And yet this man, we're going to see, is very different from the others that we tend to see in Scripture, the Gentile, uh, uh, the Roman soldiers. And so he's a Gentile. He's a non-Jewish person. He is a Roman centurion. So a Roman centurion, you might have guessed, is a Roman officer. Uh, And if you guessed about centurion, you know, century, cent, it's a hundred. He would be the captain or the the leader, the officer in charge of a hundred men within the Roman army. And so within a Roman legion, which is how they kind of gauge how many people they're sending off into battle, how many legions is the army sending, uh, a legion consists of 60 uh, centurions. And so he would have been in charge of 100 men and 60 centurions like him, and their men would have went off to battle every time a legion of the Roman army was commissioned to go and fight. And so he was a man of status, and he was a man who was probably here in Caesarea, stationed there with his men uh, to keep the peace and to be there in case any kind of threat came against the city. He would have been among the first responders. 
But here's another key to who he is that we see in the text. That he's referred to as a God-fearer. A God-fearer was actually a category of people, and we see them a couple times throughout the New Testament. And I want to make sure you understand who it is we're talking about when we read passages such as this. This is not a man who had no association with Judaism. This is not a man who only a little bit knew about the God of Israel. In fact, this is a man who, in many ways, we would have considered a convert to Judaism. Somebody who came from among the nations, somebody who was part of the Roman world, and yet had, at some point, come across the truth of the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, and had said, this is my God, these are my people, even though he himself wasn't Jewish. And so those people who come from the nations and give their life over to the God of Israel, they tend to fall into two categories. There are converts who make the full transition, and then uh, there are those who come all the, all the way except that they stop at one point. Uh, and so circumcision is that dividing line. That's what's necessary for conversion, and that is the number one reason we know from history why people, God-fearers, didn't make that all the way move to be converts. But in all ways you can imagine, this was a man who had given himself to Yahweh, a man who had given himself to the God of Israel. And we see that demonstrated throughout the text. We see that he has familiarity with the Jewish scriptures, we see that he is aware of what has been going on with this Jesus in the land because Peter's speaking to him as if he's aware of these things, right? He is generous to the Jews in need throughout the area. In fact, his people go to Peter and say he is loved by all the Jewish people. And so he has a great reputation among the Jews in this area. And we also see something interesting in verse 3, that he's praying along the same schedule of prayer as the Jewish people. See, we have very informal prayers. We pray, we pray at meals perhaps, but then we pray when we, a need arises. We pray when we have to get down on our knees before the Lord. Hopefully you're praying in scheduled quiet time with God. But when it comes to the Jewish people in the ancient world, they prayed at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., the times of the offerings at the temple. And so here we see even this, this God-fearer, this Roman centurion, is praying along the same schedule that the Jewish people were. But he wasn't a Christian. He was a God-fearer, somebody who recognized the God of Israel, but he had not yet heard and responded to the gospel. And so here is who Cornelius is. And I want to just connect the dots here. Let me read a few more verses here from verse 3 on. It says, One day at about 3 in the afternoon, at that time of prayer, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear, which I think we all would have. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. And so, again, a God-fearer who is now, not only is he praying to God, but God is giving him a distinct vision uh, and mentioning that his offerings to God, his generosity to the people are seen before God as an offering unto him. 
and God reveals to him where he's going to get the gospel message. God is preparing the way for the Messiah in this man's life. And yet the gospel is still needed. The gospel's been on a trajectory. We've been talking about this as we've gone through the book of Acts so far. Jesus gave specific instructions on where the gospel was going to start, where it was going to go, and what the impact globally was going to be. We saw this in Acts 1.8. He says to his disciples, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, and then to all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel has a trajectory. And so far in what we've read in Acts, so far in the history of the early church, uh, it has started in Jerusalem. Because of persecution, it has spread out now to various parts throughout Judea and Samaria, but it still has to go from there. Another way to look at it is this. It has been in the world of the Jews. It has been in the world of Israel. Up to this point, it's only Jewish populations and then the Samaritans who have even had an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so in the trajectory of the gospel to go to the whole world, it had to transcend the boundaries of the Jewish world because God is the God of the whole world. And we're seeing this next step in the advancement of the gospel in our passage here. Again, the gospel was intended to go from the Jews to everybody, because God is the God of the whole world. Now, you've got to remember, at this point in history, the Jews have been God's chosen people, God's elect ones for a very long time, a couple thousand years. But again, they were a vehicle through which God was going to reconcile not just Jewish people, but all people. Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were the first human beings, not the first Jews. They were our parents, all of our parents. So, uh, and, and because of that, all humanity was separated from God and God who created all desired to reconcile all. So we see Cornelius and how God is working. Let's take a look at Peter. Peter, of course, is a Jew by contrast. Uh, he has grown up among God's chosen people, the ones, not among those, but the ones who had received God's revelation through the prophets, those who had the scriptures of the Old Testament, those who had the law of Moses, those who had the long history of God's direct engagement with their people, those who had the law, whereby they governed their life in such a way to live so that they might please God and to avoid those things that displease God. That when they displeased God, they knew what was required of them in order to be reconciled to God through atonement. This is the long relationship that they had, that Peter's people had. And so part of what that did was cause this dichotomy, cause this division, if you will, between this Jewish group who had the revelation of God, who had the law, who strove to live such a way as to please God, and the Gentiles, who didn't have the law, who lived how they wanted to live, and in many ways lived in such a way that it would be disconnected from the way in which God has called his people to live. And so they distanced themselves from Gentiles. They saw it as clean and unclean, and Jewish people did not want to be defiled by associating with the unclean. And so God gives Peter this vision. In preparation for the advance of the gospel from the Jews to everybody, 
in, in preparation for it to launch out to the ends of the earth, for this next stage in the gospel advancement, he gives him a dream. And I just want to reread this dream. This is starting in verse 9 of our text. It says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. We had some conversation about that this morning in Sunday school. What is a trance? Uh, he wasn't sleeping, so it wasn't a dream. And the, this didn't literally unfold before them so that everybody around Peter saw it. So instead, during his waking time, as he was sitting waiting for the meal to be prepared, God gave him directly a vision in his waking state. So that's what we mean by a trance. Verse 11. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. What is it with Peter and needing to hear things three times? I don't know. But let me tell you something that this is not talking about. This vision, this trance, this revelation from God had absolutely nothing to do with the kosher dietary laws. This had nothing to do with what Peter was from there on out allowed to eat or not eat. That just... That's a, that's, a, that's a matter for a completely different text and a completely different conversation. It had nothing to do with the food. This was an illustration. Because up till this point in history, the Jews, even the Christian Jews, saw the Gentiles as unclean. Saw them as distinct, different, farther away from God by far. A different category of person than they were before God. And this was an illustration, a metaphor, a direct vision from God demonstrating that God is now making clean that which has always been perceived by the Jews as uncleaned. And God is reconciling Gentiles to himself. We know that this is the meaning of the message. We know that Peter got the message because in verse 28, it says this, he said to them, them being Cornelius and those who gathered in his home, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God is reconciling all of humanity, all people to himself. God is the God of the whole world. I want to draw your attention to a few details of Peter's encounter with Cornelius once he arrives at his home. I'm going to give you three different things that I noticed as I was going through here. I'd give you the full list of 24, but we'd be here until next Mother's Day. So I'm just going to give you three things that I want you to focus in on in this interaction with Peter and Cornelius in Cornelius' home. The first is this, that God has prepared the way. That might seem obvious, but let's not miss it. Because a lot of times there's things we know up here and then there's things we put in practice and they don't always align. So I want you to hear this and believe this and believe that God continues to do this. God has prepared the way. Remember, Cornelius is a God-fearer. 
That means that long before he met Peter, God was working in his life. It means that even long before he got this vision of an angel telling him to go get Peter, God was working in his life. At some point in his military campaign, in his military career with the Romans, he encountered Jewish people and through them heard about the one true God of Israel, learned about the scriptures, and came to faith in the one true God in that way and became a God-fearer. God has been working in his life for a long way leading up to this point. Again, we see even in our text that God sent a vision with an angel providing instructions. And God, on the other side, was preparing Peter to go, that he might be equipped, prepared, ready for the moment that God was calling him to. And as a result, Cornelius was ready not only to respond to the gospel, but excited to hear everything that God's messenger was coming to say. He didn't want to be the only one to hear it. He brought his family into the house. He brought his closest friends into the house, and they were waiting. In fact, they were so excited that when Peter came in, he bowed down before him in reverence. And Peter had to say, whoa, 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 don't worship me. I'm just a human being. That's how excited Cornelius was. God has been working in his life. You know, sometimes God's engagement with people who we share the gospel with is obvious, kind of like this. Sometimes we go to share the gospel and we're all nervous. We work ourselves up into a tizzy. What are they going to say? What are they going to ask? Am I going to sound like an idiot? Uh, am I going to hurt this relationship? What if, I, what if I have, you know, a brain block and I don't know what to say? We're working ourselves up, making ourselves more nervous than we need to be. And we get into that moment and they're just ready to give their life to Jesus. And we realize, wait a second, I forgot. God's been preparing the way a lot farther back than I even know. Sometimes it happens like that. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes we have no idea. Sometimes it feels like we're fighting a battle in that conversation, and yet, and however it goes, God is always preparing the way. God is always at work. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Jesus himself says this at John 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. What does that mean? That means don't think that we go and we have to do something for God alone and everything hinges on how good we do. Because it's not about us. We step out in faith. That's our part of our partnership. But God's the power at work. And he has been preparing the way, regardless of what we see with our natural eyes at the end of that conversation, God is always preparing the way. Here's my second observation of Peter's engagement with Cornelius. Peter proclaims the gospel. Now that might seem, again, very, well, of course he did. But I still know a lot of Christians that don't necessarily even understand what that means. You know, I, I, I heard somebody say the other day to me, I, got, I evangelized this week, Pastor. I'm like, oh, that's great. Tell me about it. Well, I was at a restaurant. And I asked the server if I could pray for them. Is there anything I could pray for them for? I said, that's great. At what point did you share the gospel? What do you mean? Well, listen, let me first of all go ahead and say this. You ask anybody that you want, can I pray for you? That's a good thing. I'll never discourage you from that. But that's a step. And it's a step in the right direction. That's not evangelism. I have people tell me all the time, I invited people to church. That's great. Please keep doing that. But that by itself is not evangelism. 
That itself is not sharing the gospel. What is sharing the gospel? Sharing the gospel is proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the problem and God's solution and how we respond to that. And we see Peter do this. Here's what happens, even to this God-fearer, even to this guy who knows about God a lot better than some of the other people we've seen evangelized in Acts so far. Here's what he says. This is verses 39 to 43. Peter's talking. He says, we are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Catch this. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now he put it within this larger narrative explaining what the Bible says about our problem of sin and what God has done as solution. But what is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for our sins and God raised him from the dead and only in him can we be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's the gospel message. And Peter was sure to proclaim it because that is the only gospel, the only doorway. What God has done in Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation, and we must proclaim it. And Peter did. And we too are called, we're commanded to preach the gospel, to say those words in a relevant way, in an understandable way, not using Christianese or things that a person's not going to understand, but explaining that the problem, God's solution, and how they can respond to it. We're commanded to preach the gospel. And we should be inspired to preach the gospel. Yes, we do things because we want to be obedient. Hey, when the God of the universe tells you to do something, guess what? You'd better do it. But aside from that, we should not only do it out of obedience, we should want to do it. We should be inspired to do it. If we are if we are those who have been transformed, saved by the good news of the gospel, by, by what Jesus has done for us, then how could we not want to tell other people about it? We are evidence of the truth of the gospel. Because while we still have to put it in words, our very lives ought to demonstrate what kind of transformation God does through what he has done in history. And we must be able to articulate the gospel to others. You don't have to be this great, eloquent speaker to share the gospel. But you do need to be able to put it into words. And so that needs to be priority one. We must proclaim the gospel. Here's my third and final observation of this engagement with Peter and Cornelius at Cornelius' house. Let me read this. This is from verses 44 to 46. And here's what I want you to, to get from this. Peter was not acting alone. I already said that God went before him. He did, but then he didn't leave and turn over the keys to uh, Peter to just drive the car from there on out. Peter was not acting alone. Verses 44 through 46. I love this ver this, these verses, by the way. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. What do I like about that? Peter didn't even finish speaking. Okay, listen, that'd be the same as this. 
You work hard all week preparing a sermon. You think through all your finer points after you've dug in deeply and you've understood the passage of Scripture well enough to be able to speak to it. You've allowed it to, to work in your own heart, your own mind. You get up on Sunday morning and you're ready to preach. And about 10 minutes into your 30-minute sermon, God just does something. And people are just stirred and, and are on their knees praying. And I have no choice but to shut up because God is working. That's what's happening here. Peter came in obedience. He's doing what he was called to do. He's proclaiming the gospel. But he didn't even have to finish. And they had heard it and responded to it in their heart. And the Holy Spirit came and sealed the deal. And there was evidence of it right before them all. And they were astonished at what God had done. That he would even do among the Gentiles what he had done among the Jews. How amazing God is even while we're sharing the gospel, the Spirit of God is at work. He's always at work. And so for us, there's, there's no reason to fear evangelism. There's no reason to fear sharing the gospel. Because fear means that we take all the weight of the responsibility upon ourselves. That we're trusting in our own abilities to be able to win the day. And that's not what's happening when we share the gospel. Like Peter, we're showing up in obedience and trusting that God will honor the work, not only the work we're doing there, but that God has already been preparing the way and he is there with us. Our task is simple. God does all the heavy lifting. No words we can ever say can change a heart. I want you to, listen, I take great comfort in that as a preacher, okay? No words that any of us could say could ever change a heart. God draws and people exercise their free will to respond, and God transforms. He's always at work. We have a small but important role to play. We only fail when these things occur. We only fail when we don't evangelize or when we don't articulate the gospel or we're not willing to lead new believers in discipleship. We're all like, glad you know Jesus, have a nice day. Those are three things I could say, yeah, you failed. I know there's times in my life I failed, moments when I should have shared the gospel, moments when I stopped short of sharing the gospel, even moments when I was so excited I led somebody to faith in Christ, I brought them to church, but then I just trusted that the church was gonna do their thing discipling them, and I realized now I should have help them to understand how to read the Bible, how to pray and walk through this new life with them so they didn't feel alone. Those are the moments when we fail. But we don't fail when we go and proclaim the gospel, regardless of the outcome of those gospel-centered conversations. If we proclaim the gospel and they don't believe, that's not a failure. If you remember my story, I know most of you do, the person who shared the gospel with me did not get a favorable response on the first visit. We were in the library, and I got irrationally mad and screamed at her in the library for daring to talk these words to me. That was bad. And here's what most of us would have done, probably myself included. Well, hopefully seeds planted. Not doing that again. Instead, she followed it up a day or two later with another gospel-centered conversation and inviting me to church. And of course, God poked at my guilt in that moment. And I said yes to coming to church where I heard the gospel clearly and I was at that point ready. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
I'll tell you right now, in our day and age, with so many different competing ideas and worldviews all out there, I mean, people are probably not going to respond positively on the first time. They can. Don't ever doubt what God can do. But even if they don't, that doesn't mean they won't respond positively the second, the third, the fourth, the fifteenth time they hear it. Which is why we need to be concerned about giving people multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. So God isn't only the God of the Jews, but God is the God of the whole world. God isn't only the God of the church, but he's the God of the whole world, which means that outside, those who are not in any church anywhere in the world today, those who are not regarding the Lord today, he wants to save them. God is on mission to bring salvation, to build his kingdom, and we should all be humbled and excited that he chooses to do that through us.